that if we want to manage change, we cannot manage change well without bringing mindset into the mix. And when we seek to develop change management strategies or invest in uncertainty, we're trying to do something in the outside world. If we try to do that without acknowledging what is our inner relationship to change that is shaping and filtering those decisions and strategies and investments, then we're getting things backward. We're putting the carpet before the horse. So my number one piece of advice is remember that mindset drives strategy, not the other way around. And start there. Hi, I'm David Green, and this is a final episode of Series 17 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. You just heard April Rinney, change expert and author of a fantastic new book, Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. April is on a mission to get us to think differently about our relationship to change. It's not something we can necessarily control, but it's something we need to be very comfortable with. So the basic premise of Flux is that in a world of constant change and uncertainty, that we as humans, individually and collectively, we need to radically reshape our relationship to change and uncertainty in order to have a healthy and productive outlook. The way I like to put it is there is no end game. There is no steady state other than more change. And that's a big change, change pun intended. Throughout this episode, April and I discuss the eight superpowers to help individuals and organizations successfully navigate change, as well as April's number one piece of advice to organizations going through change. We look at the power of portfolio careers for workforce planning, for the individual to have a meaningful, satisfying work life, and on a societal level, to provide unparalleled access to opportunities. And we also look at the shifting relationship between employee and employer, and how the concept of a job is swiftly becoming extinct. Today, I'm delighted to welcome April Rinney, World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, one of the 50 leading female futurists in the world, and author of a terrific new book, Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change, to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, April. It's great to have you on. Can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to you and your work? Thank you, David. I'm delighted to be here. So first and foremost, just uh, a lot of gratitude. And sure, I'm, I'm Glad to be here. Um, it's interesting. My my professional background is not easily summed up in sort of one sentence. I am a, an accountant or a teacher. Um, today, most people do know me as a futurist. So I'm helping um, organizations better understand where is the world heading and what is our place in it. But previously, I have been an attorney. I'm I am trained as a lawyer. Don't hold that against me. Um, I'm an advance. I'm an investor. I have been a travel guide, a hiking and biking guide. Um, I have been chief strategy officer at a boutique advisory firm. Um, I'm a certified yoga teacher. So I have what I think we're going to talk about in a little bit, uh, more of an eclectic career, more like a portfolio of interests. But the futurism, what I love about that is that it really does harness everything I've done before. Um, I spent more than 15 years in global development. I've spent time in the legal world, in the financial world, um, in the, the spiritual and psychological world, et cetera, et cetera, and all of that comes together as we're trying to figure out where is the world heading and and how are we going to fare in it? 
Well, I, I'd love it if you could answer that question where the world's heading. I think it's become even more complex, obviously, over the last 20 months or so. Um, we had uh, we had a Heather McGowan, who's a, a, a futurist as well, looks at the future of work. And, and, and she was saying that, 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 that really the pandemic has almost accelerated the future of work. So I'd love to get, get your take on that before we dive into Flux. Oh, absolutely. And actually, Heather McGowan is a dear friend and colleague. So we've known each other for quite some time. I'm thrilled you were able to host her. Um, she's fantastic. And I agree completely. I mean, a lot of people would say those of us looking at the future of work, and in Heather's case, also the future of learning and education and skills building, um, that we saw nearly, I would say, at least a decade of future of work projections compressed into about two to three quarters. Now, that is primarily around remote work, right? I, I gave keynotes back in 2014 about how remote work was really this trend that was going to continue to take root. And it was sort of like, yeah, maybe we'll deal with it when we have to. And, you know, that's not part of a keynote I have to give anymore. But other trends around workplace flexibility, the need to recalibrate how we think about work and life and, you know, are we trying to fit life into work or work into life, that sort of thing. Um, obviously, automation, which is a kind of disruption I was looking at long before COVID hit, but some people would say that that has accelerated as well. Um, so yes, absolutely what, what Heather was saying, I would echo that and, and more. Really, for me, it's all about what does this mean about how we, how we relate to change in general, not just around the future of work, but just in pretty much every aspect of our lives. So I, I know you started writing the book before the pandemic. Um, so I'm not, you know, I, I know that it was already planned. And, and I guess some of the a lot of the ideas in it now are maybe come to fruition a lot quicker than, than we thought. But I'd love to know, you know, tell, talk, talk to listeners a little bit um, about Flux. Now, what's the big idea behind Flux and, and having a Flux mindset? So the basic premise of Flux is that in a world of constant change and uncertainty, that we as humans, individually and collectively, we need to radically reshape our relationship to change and uncertainty in order to have a healthy and productive outlook. And so to your point, um, I've actually been, I've been writing the book since 2018. So it's sort of three years in the act of creation. But I like to say it's more like three decades in the making in terms of when I peel back the layers of the onion and what led me to write the book and what had I been observing and what had been making me increasingly concerned about humans' relationships to change. And it is this notion that, um, you know, I think I think a lot of humans, we, we still sort of think we can control what's going to happen in the future. We th still think we can sort of engineer change. And we certainly can manage change. But I will give a caveat. A lot of people have said, oh, you wrote a book about change, or especially you wrote a book about change management. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I did not write a book about those things. I wrote a book about humans' relationships to change and how we relate to change from the inside out. Because one of my big concerns is that we spend so much time trying to not just manage change, but react to it. So like something happens and we, we sort of triage, and, but we assume that if we react to change, then things will go back to normal. And that is not the world we live in. And even more so, that is not the future we're going to be living in. So that requires this more holistic reshaping of how we relate to change and lean into uncertainty 
um, which, you know, is, is not what many of us have been taught to do. It's not what many of us, I think, assume. It's, it, it goes against a lot of our assumptions and expectations, but I think it's wholly necessary to be able to thrive in this future in which the way I like to put it is there is no end game. There is no steady state other than more change. And that's a big change, change, pun intended, um, from, you know, again, again, what we what we typically think. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, organizations used to talk about, you know, a transformation and there was a, a start and an end and they were transformed. Um, you know, I'm not sure if that was ever really the case, but it's certainly not the case now. Transformation is continuous and organizations are continually having to adapt and, you know, and, and re- almost reinvent themselves in m- many respects around whether it's products or services that they deliver, you know, got different competitors, new competitors coming in who obviously digital enables people to, to enter markets in, in a big way and, and radically change them. That's from the organizational sense, I guess. And then from an, from an individual sense, whether you're an employee or a citizen, then, then that impacts you as well. And, but we've proven almost, again, we're quite an adaptable beings, the, the human race, aren't we? we? We've proved we can adapt over the last 20 months or so in many respects. Yes. And I would say, you know, humans, we are adaptable when we're forced to. Yes. When our yes. back is against the wall and it's like, mm, I need to do this. Otherwise, I might not survive. <laughs> That's typically painful. And it's typically things break in the process. And it's not, you know, I'm not talking about some kind of kumbaya, la la, make it all easy and and fluffy. But there was a lot, there's been a lot of pain over the last 20 months. And you look back and, you know, as a futurist, I think anybody in the futurism world would say uh, a pandemic, that was not unforeseen. We knew something like that was going to happen. Yet it caught a lot of us. Um, by surprise, and there was this sense of like, oh my goodness, I have to, I have to adapt. But that it wasn't something we naturally leaned into. We did it because we had to. What I'm looking at is, we want to do this. We want to opt in to this sense of, to your point, perpetual transformation. And I love that you bring that up because um, I recently wrote a piece where we talk about even like chief transformation officers, or where does chief change officer come up in an organization? And in my experience, if you have a chief change officer or a chief transformation officer, 99 times out of 100, that is about digital transformation, simply making your products and services appropriate for the digital economy. And I'm like, wow, that's it's very siloed thinking, but it's also not the kind of broader transformation we really need. So I love riffing on what does the, what does the chief change officer for a future in flux look like, which is much more, um, you know, cross cross functional. It's much more like the connective tissue of an entire organization. But again, it gets a lot into the human dynamics of this. This goes far beyond processes and what products and services are we going to develop. I mean, this is about the humans in an organization. And so back to your point, looking at the kinds of changes that we're experiencing individually and organizationally and societally, because a big piece of what brought me to write this book. I mean, I was interested as a futurist, I realized every single organization <laughs> struggles with change in some way. Not necessarily in the same way, but like every organization can use some help. But also in my travels and work and so my entire career has been international and I've been to more than 100 countries. I've worked in more than 50 and that's given me this huge exposure to different cultures. And one of the things I also realized was that every single culture and society on the planet 
also struggles with change in some way, but also has developed different ways of seeing it, talking about it, concepts and rituals and traditions around change. And it's not that one place has figured it out, but there's a lot we can learn from one another. And so it's, you know, all of those pieces and then the human piece too, just my own lived experience with change and uncertainty that I was sort of exhibit A for a lot of this stuff. But then as I started to look around, I was like, this is endemic and this is a big wake. It's a, it's a wake up call for us, but it's also, I think, a warm up for what's ahead. Yeah. And, and, and in flux, I mean, I love it. You called the, the eight flux superpowers. So we're going to have to talk a little bit about those. Um, I like superpowers. I was a Batman and Robin <laughs> fan when I was a kid. Um, I know we're going to talk, uh, going to go into a bit more depth around creating portfolio careers, but what are the other uh, eight flux superpowers? Just sort of a brief overview of them, whet people's appetite if they haven't read the book. Yeah, sure. So um, real quick, and, and let me give a little bit of preface to how we ended up with the flux superpowers. And I love that you mentioned superpowers because we played around with, you know, disciplines and practices and, and the superpowers require discipline and practice. But I really love this sense of they are superpowers because they will help you thrive in a world in flux. And I spent years, decades, you know, honing and refining oh, which ones made the cut. So just very briefly, though, so this notion of flux, um, flux is both a noun and a verb. As a noun, it means continuous change. As a verb, it means to learn to become fluid. So the world is in flux. We all need to learn how to flux. Now, the first concept upon which the flux superpowers depend is what I call a flux mindset. And so I want to just introduce that concept because a flux mindset is basically, one, it's the acknowledgement that your relationship to change needs help. But two, it's as a mindset, it is that state of mind that can see all change. Because again, keep in mind, we love change, certain changes. We hate certain changes. We expect certain changes. We don't expect others. So without judging what kind of changes, having a flux mindset means being able to see all change, good or bad, expected or not, you name it, as an opportunity to learn and to grow and to improve. So it is this notion that like how we think about change is changing and I need to upgrade my state of mind, my mindset. Now, so it requires you to have that kind of mm, premise, that sense of like, okay, we're up for we're up for a transformation personally, organizationally, etc. So how do we do that? What do we do? And that's what the flux superpowers are. The flux superpowers um, are what I call sort of the how to thrive in constant change, and there are eight of them. And I can easily give a quick overview. Um, keep in mind, though, that a lot of these flux superpowers do go against the grain of what society often tells us we're supposed to do. They are a bit counterintuitive. They're a bit contrarian. So I'll, I'll run through all eight and you can uh, let me. Sorry. Yeah, it's very they're they're provocative in a healthy way. They force yeah. us to reconcile and really think about our assumptions and expectations and how so many of those things get thrown upside down in a world in flux. So the first flux superpower is run slower, which is all about um, anxiety and burnout and how do we make wiser decisions. The second superpower is see what's invisible, which helps us identify blind spots and how do we discover new opportunities, new insights, new sources of value. 
The third flux superpower is get lost, um, which focuses on how do we stretch beyond our comfort zone, which change often asks us to do. And what is our relationship with the unknown? And it's all right not to know everything, basically. Be comfortable with not knowing everything. And and what we're typically told exactly, the comfort, radical comfort with, with not knowing, and not just that, embracing it, actually seeing that is where the answers are to be found. Because when you think about what society typically tells us, it tells us that getting lost means failure. You're supposed to focus, stay on the path, know where you're going, have sort of certainty and like, you know, achieve success, etc. You're not supposed to take detours. You're not supposed to get lost. Get lost. Getting lost means you've done something wrong. And yet when change hits, the people who actually are very, very comfortable not knowing and who are comfortable taking that off-road, that detour, candidly blazing a new trail, not going the path that's already been trod, but blazing something new, they're the ones who will thrive. So that becomes this kind of superpower. Um, the others, so the fourth one is actually start with trust. So this is all about how do we nurture trusted relationships and navigate change together. And we may want to come back to this one. I, I do admit that starting with trust, I call that the sort of super, superpower because it, it fuels so much else. Trust is kind of the, the fulcrum around which a lot else revolves. Um, yeah. the fifth one is what I call know you're enough which digs into our obsession with more and what is our quest for true happiness. And change throws a lot of that up into the air. But the punchline here is that when we are always after more, and that might be more money or more power or more love or more likes or more clicks or more clothes, like more everything, right? When we're always after more, we will never find enough. And that is by design. But when we know our enough, we will immediately begin to see abundance. So this relates to both your enough, like your point of sufficiency and, and well-being, but also knowing that you are enough. Um, it's both Y-O-U-R and Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. Um, the sixth one is portfolio careers. So I will simply put that off for later, but this is about yeah, how we definitely come back to that. Yeah. Professional identity and how we look at and thrive in a future of work that is itself in flux. The seventh one is be all the more human, which digs into our relationship with technology and the tension that we have today around the fact that we're spending ever more time with our devices and ever less time with one another. And last but not least, the eighth flux superpower is let go of the future, which is all about our relationship to control, something that I find is tricky for almost everyone today. And again, back to this counterintuitiveness, letting go of the future, to be clear, it doesn't mean giving up. It doesn't mean failing. It doesn't mean doomsdaying. It's actually really empowering when I get to explain you know, the deeper context behind what it means. Great. That's really helpful. And I think you're right. Let's, let's definitely come back to, to start with trust. And I'm sure we'll cover some of the other eight throughout the rest of our conversation as well, April. So yeah. we, we pause a bit on creating portfolio careers. You know, I think that's really important to our audience, you know, which is predominantly yeah. HR professionals. Um, to start with, can you explain that, that, that superpower in a bit more detail, what it is and, and why it can help individuals navigate change better? Yeah. So. Creating your portfolio career. What is a portfolio career? 
back up for a moment and think about, again, what I call our script. What is the narrative? What is the story that we're told about our professional development, our career development, and our professional identity, right? For most of us, myself included, you know, I was taught study hard, get good grades, go to university, get a good job, do said job, retire. Kind of this linear career, right? Here I'm channeling Heather McGowan as well, right? It's linear. Now, today, every single one of those nodes is breaking, it's cracking for lots of different reasons, right? Both supply and demand side, if you will. So you've got companies who, with automation and other forces, you know, we don't know what the jobs of the future are going to be. Companies don't know exactly what roles they're going to hire and so forth. That's very challenging for individuals to kind of, will I have a a job? Will I have a meaningful career, etc.? But you also have a lot of talent saying, I don't want that. I look at my parents or older generations. That is not the life I aspire to. Most of those people are miserable. And I say this, you know, not to general. Well, I am generalizing. Not there. There are people who have had very, very meaningful careers. But there are a lot of young people saying the system is not what I want to opt into. But they're also looking around at a world in which. There are so many new ways to work, to earn income, to create a livelihood. So they're saying that's just one of this much, one option in this much broader um, menu, if you will. So back to this notion of a career path. We've been taught it's linear. We've been taught you climb the ladder up and that that's kind of how society defines success. And you look at this and you go, "Mm, maybe, I'm not saying, I'm not saying a career path is like completely dead. I'm saying it only applies to a fraction of people. And we need a holistic rethink and reshaping and reframing of what a meaningful, successful career looks like. And that is where a portfolio comes in. So the difference between a path and a portfolio, a path is a singular pursuit to straight line and, you know, full bore ahead. A portfolio, what I love about this, and I've had lots of conversations about this, that you can think about it in a few different ways. Most people that I talk to like to think about a portfolio either as an investor would or as an artist would, right? So investors have portfolios of investments. Why do they have that? So that they can diversify and mitigate risk. An artist has a portfolio. Why do they have that? So that they can put all their best works in it, in one place. But those works can be quite different from one another. Then you've got executives that have portfolios and, you know, BCG's portfolio theory. You have office managers who have portfolios to keep things coordinated and organized, right? But this notion is that a portfolio is something that is uniquely yours. It has everything that you're capable of doing, far more than what's simply on your resume that goes into it. And if you're good at curating it, which means finding the connections between the varied things that you do, understanding which skills are appropriate in which places. And to be clear, your portfolio can help you get a job, but your portfolio can also help you launch your own business. It can help you pivot. It can help you basically navigate this future of work that's full of uncertainty. But so really for me, it's this concept of how do we think about our careers? And obviously, this is really important for talent, individuals, but organizations, and this is the piece I want to bring home for the audience as well, organizations need to figure out 
how do we help our talent create and curate their portfolios too? That will be key because what you're helping an individual do is have agency and responsibility over their professional future. Because I'm going to be really candid, organizations are so focused on, we just want to keep our talent. We want to acquire and retain them. Those are very outdated words to use. You're speaking about owning your talent. You're speaking about possessing them, which is not something that most talent wants these days. But also, you have no idea what kind of disruption is happening to you. You know you're going to be letting people go down the road as well. How do you prepare that if you really care about your talent, you're going to help them succeed and thrive wherever they may be, not simply when you, quote unquote, own them and their time while they're at your organization. So I know I've just said a whole lot, but let me pause there. No, 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 I, I agree. You see that you see that happening. It's funny because, you know, a lot of people talking about the great resignation at the moment, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and as you say, you know, sometimes I think, as can I imagine, we really celebrate great people moving on to develop their careers wherever they want to, whether it's another organization setting up their own company uh, and everything else. And providing we provide opportunity for people to, to, to develop as, as people as, uh, as well as professionals, then, you know, talent will tend to stick around a little bit longer. The irony is that if you help people develop their portfolios, yes, you would lose some people along the way because they're going to go and do what they're truly passionate about doing. That should be a win for you. But the, but the irony is more talent is more likely to stay because they actually see that you have an interest in and want to invest in them as human beings, not simply them and their hard or technical skills or, again, just their resume and just as, you know, again, generalizing, but just as a cog in a wheel kind of thing. Um, so it's fascinating, but, but yeah, it, the great resignation, it's fascinating. This is one of those things too, where thinking about validation and acceleration of some of my ideas, the great resignation is really underscoring just how many people for whom this old way of thinking about work and career and professional development wasn't working. So for me, it, it's, I'm, I'm sad to see so many organizations struggling, but I'd much rather have a wake-up call like this that allows us to do things better than to have people continuing to muddle along without taking action on how miserable they are. When we come back in just a moment, April talks to us about the business benefits of encouraging portfolio careers. Thanks to Degreed for sponsoring this series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Degreed is a workforce upskilling platform for one in three Fortune 50 companies and connects all your learning, talent development and internal mobility opportunities to intelligence on the skills your business needs next. It does it all in one simple, fluid, skill-building experience that's powered by your people's expertise and interests so you can transform your workforce from within. Founded in 2012, Degreed is headquartered in Pleasanton, California with additional offices in Salt Lake City, New York, London, Amsterdam, and Brisbane. To learn more, visit Degreed.com. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with April Rinney, change expert and author of Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. 
Now, back to the conversation. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think we saw, we've seen throughout the pandemic, you know, a lot of organizations, their number one priority has been employee well-being, um, mm-hmm. which is probably different from maybe if this had happened 15, 20 years ago. Uh, and, and it's about keeping that, isn't it? Because if you're putting the employee at the center or employees in the center of what you do, whether that's within your company or, or, or elsewhere, number one, if you help them develop, then they may come back at some point later in their career anyway. Um, you know, so, you know, and I, I suppose we see people cultivating uh, alumni um, programs as well now. So they're no, really, oh, yeah. re- really fascinating. Well, and I and, and you've just made me think of a couple other things, because I think of this often as a kind of revolving door phenomenon as well. I have seen so many cases in which individuals have worked in an organization and it's not that they were miserable there, but they wanted a new challenge. They wanted to build some new skills. So they left. But then they, if they liked, if the company did their job well, and if the company supported their departure and sort of didn't make them feel stigmatized or something, then they actually came back as a consultant or, and it wasn't always as a full-time employee, but it was more like, no, 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 I like, I have, and, and this speaks directly to trust. This speaks directly to agency, you know, a few other superpowers um, that lo and behold, you find that actually the kind of meaningful talent retention, so to speak, um, it's there, but it requires you being able to let go a little bit. Um, And actually, I wanted to pick up also on the mental health piece. There is it relates directly to superpower number one of running slower, where there's been this huge focus on employee well-being, but also there is this notion of when we're just running ever faster. And I think a lot of people over the last 20 months, yes, we focus on well-being, but we're running as fast as we possibly can. Like, when is this going to end? And there's this bigger narrative around if we know, and the way I like to frame it is around the pace of change, right? Where the pace of change has never been as fast as it is today, never mind the pandemic just in general. And yet it is likely to never again be this slow. Right? Yeah. And think about what companies and society, again, tell us to do. When the pace of change quickens, you're supposed to keep up and run faster. And I'm looking at this as, you know, as a futurist and as a human, and I'm going, wait a minute. So if I know today that the pace of change is going to be faster tomorrow and faster next week and faster next month and faster next year for the rest of my life, like, I'm sorry, time out. That is not a life I want, but more broadly, more importantly, it's not a future in which any human under those circumstances can thrive. And so I feel like the last, yeah, 20-ish months of companies waking up to the importance of mental health, um, it's a precursor of what's going to happen, of what's coming, because simply focusing on mental health, it's a fabulous start. But if you're still on this, you know, the treadmill of the running faster and haven't grappled with that, you're you still have a bigger problem to address and and what i love talent can help you figure this out it isn't all up to you as an hr professional talent has ideas but it requires inviting them in and kind of co-creating the solutions together which we're starting to see more more i think in hr now around that co-creating uh programs with employees rather than just developing them for them so it's quite interesting let's talk a little bit about some of the business benefits. We've talked a couple about a couple of them already, but let's talk about a bit about the business benefits of encouraging portfolio careers. So as an organization, as an HR professional servicing and you know, helping that organization to cultivate talent, as it were. You know, 
what you know business benefits instead of encouraging portfolio careers and a more agile approach to work what can companies hope to gain what are some of the things that they should expect to gain or benefit from yeah so this plays out in a few different ways on the one hand you can think about people with portfolio careers as diversity of talent and there i mean diversity of background diversity of experiences diversity of skills diversity of perspectives diversity of contacts, right? All of those things are really valuable to an organization. And I think in particular, diversity of perspectives and like, how do you look at problems and how do you think about change? Now, I'm looking at this from the context, for me, the grounding question is, what does this mean when change hits? So for me, the more diverse your team, And the more diverse their portfolios, the better equipped you are to navigate change because you have access to so many more skills, perspectives, backgrounds, et cetera. In particular, when we don't know what to do, and candidly, no one knows what to do and we're having to blaze new trails, having that kind of access is invaluable versus a team that is primarily siloed and each person has their one area of expertise and that's kind of what they know. Not that you can't muddle through change, but you're really kind of like, everyone's very set in their thinking. It becomes much harder to adapt and react and move through change. So there's that kind of piece just in terms of what do you have access to when change hits? How do you make your way through? Now, I would say it plays out more broadly in terms of what kinds of products and services that you develop, how you understand your markets, your audiences, where those might go in the future. Um, From a culture perspective, do people feel like they have ownership of their career or do they feel like they're doing something for you? You want for your talent to feel like they have ownership and agency over what they're doing and what they're building. Portfolio career helps build that. So its role for culture is really, really important. Um, It also turns out that people who have a portfolio career naturally find a sense of more meaning in what they do because they own, no one can take one's portfolio away from them versus someone who gives you a job can take that job away whether you want it or not, whether you want that to happen or not. So there's that kind of sense. And again, there's not a disconnect. You can have a portfolio and have a full-time job at a company. It's how we think about our careers. And then I think more more broadly, it is this sense for an organization to recognize that when you have people with portfolio careers in your organization, you're helping them with this professional identity that's much more fluid and malleable and kind of evolving over time. And at the end of the day, you're helping them become um, unautomatable, as I like to say it. But also, I think about that from an organization's reputation perspective. How will they be seen in the public light? And when you've got this kind of give and take and you've helped people develop their portfolios, you've done a lot to boost your goodwill. You've done a lot to boost your reputation and um, standing, I think, in broader society. And that will go a long way, um, not only, but including when change hits. Yeah. And and actually helps act as a a magnet for for great talent. Absolutely. So quick point on this. It's fascinating because I'm working with a wide range of organizations, large ones or Fortune 100 companies, but a lot of startups and nonprofits and public sector and private sector. 
And what's fascinating to me, so there are companies out there for whom the great resignation is not an issue. They're fine, but they're still figuring out, they're the minority, but they're, they're out there and they're figuring out how do we make sure that we attract. We're, you know, we're already in the, the great attraction. And yeah. um, each of the Flux superpowers actually have this list of like Fluxy leaders and what that looks like in practice. And organizations that have strengths in the Flux superpowers, they're the ones who have the, the, the seeds of this kind of culture that is exactly to your point, a magnet for top talent. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with April, where we discuss the importance of flexible organizational design. There's some of the organizational uh, benefits, and again, you touched on it. Is there a broader um, societal uh, level incentive for encouraging this, it's this kind of flexibility as well? You've touched on some of the things around mental health, for example. but Yeah, I, I look at this absolutely. So I, I do happen to be somebody who believes that business has a broader role and responsibility in society. Um, I've always felt that. Um, I remember decades ago in my 20s when I was starting out and going like, how can they not think they do? That was just me. But I remember feeling that that was almost an awkward conversation to have. And my own decisions were very much rooted in that sort of thing. And, and people gave me flack for it at the time. Kind of like, why wouldn't you just focus on making a bunch of money kind of thing? And I was like, because I don't think that money is what defines our contributions to society at the end of the day. So anyway, fast forward, and it's it's very refreshing that we're having lots of conversations about business's broader role in society. I look at the societal mandate or um, responsibility, opportunity, you could say, of portfolio careers. One is from the individual level, the idea that each and every one of us, or at least as many individuals as possible, could actually have a career of meaning and purpose and dignity and integrity and all of that, but also a hand in creating their own future in a way that works for them. Yep. That's marvelous. That, that to me does speak, you know, I get kind of goosebumps. Um, that speaks to me of, of humanity, of really the kind of world we want to live in and help thrive and help one another thrive. And, you know, I want for you to be able to bring your very best and do the things that you care about most. That means helping you develop your portfolio career. And I would hope that you would want the same for me. And a lot of employers are like, no, I just need you to do this one task. And it's like, that's just not very inspiring. So there's that piece. And then the, the more macro-ish piece I would pull out here is around automation. And the fact that automation is one of the biggest forces of flux moving forward. I think climate and automation are two of the biggest, you know, flux to come, get ready, buckle up. 
And if you're an organization, if you're an employer and you want what's best for people, you need to help them, as I like to say, become unautomatable or at least make sure that they're going to have the ability to move forward in their careers, even if whatever they're doing today changes dramatically or even disappears tomorrow. So that kind of um, societal mandate, I think, too, in the face of technology that's going to do much more than just disrupt, it's going to, you know, um, it's going to make entire professions maybe not entirely obsolete, but transformed to the point that it won't be able to support labor and talent like they do today. So um, that's where that factors in. Yeah, and, and I think on the societal side, we, we are seeing moves, you know, and investors are now very much interested, not just so how much profit a company is making, they're looking at other elements, their broader impact on society. We've seen the business roundtable, which is from memory is about 183 of the of the CEOs of the biggest companies in the US talking about now it's not all about profits, it's about our impact on all stakeholders, including society and the community. So we can see hopefully the the the, the path in which this is going. So which is what by you know comes in very well to what you're talking about here. But we're talking quite substantial change um in talent management, I guess, for for, for most organizations, not all organizations, because some are out there. Um, trying to, to trying to do this. What are the bl- biggest blockers you see in your research, and and how are they overcome? And you know, if you've got some examples, that would be great to great to hear. Specifically, and I've been part of um, the conversations around stakeholder capitalism for quite some time, and I love seeing that. I'm also keenly aware, and I say this respectfully, um, press releases don't translate into action, and and we can invest yeah. in things, but we have a lot more to do. The biggest, and in in terms of, I want to keep this simple as well, because there are lots of blockers actually, but one of the biggest ones that I see is that particularly around um, portfolio careers and and just HR is that it's around organizational design and it's around the systems we have. And again, we design them so we can redesign them. It's not like, it's not like a force of gravity that we have no control over. Like we can do better. But this notion that there's a real hunger, and I should mention too, this factors directly into organizations' diversity, equity, and inclusion mandates as well. So it's all linking. But this notion of we want more diverse talent. We want for people to have meaning and purpose and 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 evolve as they grow professionally. And you know, we we want all of these things. And again, it's even in policies and manuals and stuff. And yet, and again, I'm speaking more in the traditional sort of jobs environment. And yet when push comes to shove, we're going to hire the person with 20 years experience in that one vertical. And it's like, wow, you just, you have this huge disconnect between what you're saying. And I genuinely believe HR managers, they want this. And yet there's a huge block in the design of what's needed and how they're currently filtering decisions. And more, if we zoom out for a minute, I love, um, I frame this more broadly. It's not just portfolio careers, but so many parts about living in a world that we think, many of us, I think, have been taught to believe that we can, we can predict and control and command what's going to happen, like that humans somehow have this ability. And when we're waking up to the reality of like, wow, the world we were taught we might inhabit is very different than the world we're actually living in when it comes to change. 
So we're, we sense that we're in the midst, we're in the early stages of this shift, these, these big shifts that need to happen. And we want to get there. But the problem is we're still filtering our decisions through this very old script, right? And so the block is we need to start writing, not just writing the scripts, but actually testing and experimenting and iterating and doing it. Um, and some organizations are taking baby steps towards that end, but that is a huge block because we can see the change that we want to have happen, but we're still basically in a straight jacket. We're in these old models and, you know, um, boxes, if you will, that have not adapted to where talent is, but also where constant change is going to take us. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's probably, the biggest blocker that I see right now. It's not lack of interest and it's not a lack of good intentions, but those alone do not carry the day. So we're seeing in, in, in some organizations at the moment, they're creating, you know, talent marketplaces is a phrase that, that the listeners yeah. will understand. And it's not just about, you know, I do this job today, I can do that job tomorrow. It's more, I've got the, I could doing this, this role today and I've got these skills and I'd actually like to use some of those skills, maybe six seven hours a week and and it's it's helping people get projects within within the organization as well so okay you're still working for an organization but you're you're spreading your skills across a number of different roles very much so yeah and also i'll link this to the future of um of learning and education very interesting um i'm doing some work not nearly as much as heather mcgowan but i i dabble a little bit in the future of higher education and preparing young talent for for their careers and still, it, there's still this huge focus on jobs, which I think is misplaced because lots of other options out there. But to their credit, many universities now are rebranding their career services centers, right? Basically how to get a job. They're rebranding them into life design centers, which is, you know, how to build something that's not just a job you're going to do for X hours a day. And I find that fast. I mean, there's there's a definite overlap here between, and I know life design gets a lot of press. Um, sometimes it's an overused term, but this notion that you are not defined by your job. I think that's really, really important. And um, obviously the last 20 months have been part of that wake up call, but for people to recognize that when you're not part of your, when you're not defined only by your job, um, what are the different ways that you would like to be defined? And then what are the skills that you want to develop in order to to bring that to help that identity flourish? And is this is this an opportunity for organisations to to rebalance that relationship between employer and employee? I think we're seeing the shift towards the employee anyway, to be honest. Or is is it Absolutely. time actually to to actually think about it in a completely new way? Yeah, I mean, yes, to some degree. I think there will always be, insofar. I get really interested. It's probably a different conversation for a different day, but I get really interested in thinking about the future of quote jobs. We have this term jobs, which is okay. It's a way to define you deliver services and you get money for them kind of thing. Yeah. Right. But what is a job in the future going to look like? And I'm like, I think a fraction of people will be working in quote jobs. Like we think of them today, even the talent marketplace you were just describing. Yes, we could call those jobs, but they're something different. They're not, they're not nine to five, Monday to Friday, and they're not something you do for a decade. And like, no. So that piece I think is, is right. There's a discussion just right there. When we call things jobs, 
we sort of have this idea of what a, a job is. And I, I look, and this goes back to my work many years ago, even in global development, in which it wasn't about jobs, it was about livelihoods. And I love that term livelihood. A livelihood is how you create a life. A job is how you earn income. But a livelihood, you know, what brings you alive, right? And so I think that part of where we're heading with this is a shift towards what does it mean to have a, a talent pool or a labor force that has livelihoods, right? That, um, you know, that brings something alive that a job doesn't necessarily. Um, I will bring up though, and I, I, I mentioned it briefly before, but I'll echo it again here. The language that we use around employment, I think that is up for uh, an upgrade, a refresh. And why I say that, go back to what I mentioned before, this notion that we talk about talent acquisition and talent retention. And those words on their own are not, they're not good or bad. They're just words. But when you look at what it means to acquire talent, it means to possess them. And talent acquisition and talent retention are extremely employer-centric terms. They speak to a one-way relationship where the employer has the power and the employee does not. And I don't want to go too far here, but there's an element of it's, it's a little bit like slavery. Somebody's going to own somebody else. And that is not the world we live in today. Much preferred for me and for many others, talent attraction, talent engagement. If I want to attract you, I'm like a magnet. I'm irresistible. You want to work with me. I think that, and that is talent attraction is, mm, I wouldn't say it's employer or employee centric. It's kind of neutral. But from an employee perspective, it's like, ooh, I'd like to be attracted. I'd like to, you know, and engagement. Yes, engage, see me as a whole human. Don't try to retain me. Try to engage me. Try to see me for all that I am. And so I do think that language, and language is powerful, right? Language carries. And I think there's a lot of language that we use in modern day society, um, in the workplace and beyond, that we kind of take for granted. And we need to stop taking it for granted. Because the undercurrent, the subtext of what we're saying doesn't really align with what we're after. So a couple ideas there. <laughs> it's a great ideas. And actually, you're right. Language is so important. You know, the, depending on the words you use in, a, in an advert to, to attract someone, I, I use your language there, it, it will depend on, you know, it can have a big influence on if you attract enough females to, to, to apply for it by using certain words. Right. And, and, and actually, right. it's only when we've started to really analyze some of those words that we can see that some of those words just put off certain groups from, from applying, which is quite interesting. Exactly. And I'll be clear, like, Sometimes it's very conscious. There's like a, there's like an, like it's offensive. It's, it will repel somebody. A lot of times it's unconscious, but it's picked up. And what's fascinating to me, and I don't want to, I don't want to generalize here, but there are a non-trivial number of companies who use this language, but they've never actually tested it amongst mm -hmm. talent, right? They just sort of put it out there and they assume it's what's going to work. And yet I work with young people. Young people are picking this up. They're like, and, and they take offense. They don't like it. And yet it's like, gosh, that was not rocket science for you to maybe think about what you're putting in some of your marketing materials and uh, recruitment materials. 
and again, this is both with regards to how we talk about hiring and recruitment. It's also how we talk about diversity, inclusion, belonging, what kind of talent we want to attract, et cetera. So, yeah. I love this too, because this, this is pretty low-hanging fruit. Like what I'm, yeah. the recommendations I'm making here, they don't require any technology we don't have. They don't require a bunch of money you may or may not have. Like they're right at our fingertips. We can yeah. start making these changes today with what we already have. Which leads nicely on. We've got, we've got a couple of questions, April, and I, I know we could talk longer, but Ian will definitely shut us off at some point. Um, <laughs> you, you recently wrote in an article for Harvard Business Review that the time to prepare for change is not when it hits, it's before it hits, and during, during times of relative calm. We haven't had much calm over the last 20 months. What is your number one piece of advice for organizations preparing for change as we continue to operate in times of uncertainty and will continue to operate in times of uncertainty? Yeah, so my number one piece of advice goes back to what I, not what we talked about in detail, but a, a, a small piece of what I was saying earlier. It has to relate to the difference between mindset and management. And this notion that if we want to manage change, we cannot manage change well without bringing mindset into the mix. And when we seek to develop change management strategies or invest in uncertainty, we're trying to do something in the outside world. If we try to do that without acknowledging what is our inner relationship to change that is shaping and filtering those decisions and strategies and investments, then we're getting things backward. We're putting the cart before the horse. So my number one piece of advice is remember that mindset drives strategy, not the other way around. And start there. Mindset before strategy. I think that's a good, yeah. good takeaway from that. And so this is a question we're asking everyone on this series, and, and, and we've touched on some of this, I think, already, but maybe bring it together in a, in a nice, neat summary. How can HR help the business identify the, the critical skills for the future? Yeah, so HR is all about humans. Talent, capital, the skills of the future are going to be the human ones. That The human, our shared humanity, human skills, keeping humans at the center of what's going on, that is going to be what helps us thrive. And so that right there, I mean, it's, it's this sense of keeping humans central. And the way I also like to just frame this from the, the human and cultural perspective is that when everything is in flux, <laughs> I think there's very little that's not these days, when everything is in flux, that everything can benefit from a flux mindset. And so what does that mean to bring into the HR discipline, if you will. But also I look at this and I'm like, the talent, the skills you're going to need for the future, I'm a little bit biased here, but you bundle them together and they're in a flux mindset. And the ability to navigate and be comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty and change is I think going to be the number one skill required for years to come. Yeah. And and also again from HR, I guessing it's support your employees to to learn continuously whether that's for careers if they want them within your organization or to help them develop their capabilities for for their portfolio careers elsewhere absolutely and that we need employers and employees alike have vested interests in success and they don't always see eye to eye but 
we have to have an employee centric mindset. There has to be, if, if you can't keep your employees, you have no business. So we need to be able to see closer eye to eye than I think has been the norm in the past. Well, April, I've really enjoyed our discussion um, and, you know, learning more about um, about fl- a flux mindset and the superpowers that, that you've got in the you've got in the book. Thanks for being a guest on the, on the podcast. Um, can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media and find out more about your work and find out more about um, flux as well? Absolutely. Delighted. So um, to learn more about flux and a flux mindset and all of that, go to fluxmindset.com. Um, and there's lots more resources. I've tried to really make a lot of this just publicly available and articles and whatnot. So fluxmindset.com. Um, my personal website is aprilrinney.com. And that's just a bit more about me and also my email, april at aprilrinney.com. I am April Rinney on all social media handles. Um, I like to say no one else, as far as I can tell, has my name. So that makes it very easy to find me. And uh, I'd welcome hearing from you. Um, keep in touch. And thank you, David, for today. Well, thank you. You, you don't have the problem I have, which ever, lots of people have my name. So, yeah. <laughs> I know. But, hey, and I even wear a green jumper so people see me. It's funny. I mean, as a kid, you kind of grew up thinking like, gosh, I wish I had a name that it wasn't quite so unique, right? You just wanted to fit in. And as an adult, I love the name that very, few, pe- very yeah. few people can pronounce my last name, but you can. So thank you again. Oh, thank you, April. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. Likewise. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and our weekly newsletter at myhrfuture.com. And with that, we've come to the end of another series. Tune in next week as we launch Series 18. For Episode 1, I'll be joined by Dr. Jacqueline Lee, Chief Human Resources Officer at the Singapore University of Technology and Design. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.